Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to Kevin Youngblood, entrepreneur in residence at Grand Canyon University and chairman of the board at Local First Arizona, about entrepreneurship, localism, and giving. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks for being with us uh, for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Um, today, we talked to Kevin Youngblood, who uh, I don't know if he is the world's most interesting man, but he, he might be Phoenix's most interesting man. Uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know him over the last few months. Uh, Kevin has served our country uh, in the military during uh, Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm, where he uh, won eight medals. Uh, he's been the mayor of Carl, Georgia, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. He has started and run several businesses as a serial entrepreneur, uh, the most recent being Odysseyware, an educational software company that he sold a few years ago. Um, and it's much more than that, though. Uh, Kevin fits into all these categories of giving, doing, and thinking alike. Uh, he is the entrepreneur in residence at Grand Canyon University, as I mentioned. Um, that's an innovation center for startups uh, here in the Valley, in Phoenix. Uh, he is the chairman of the board at Local First Arizona, and we'll definitely be talking about that. And he also helps uh, startup founders um, uh, with his uh, Young Blood Works business. So there's a lot we can talk to Kevin about. And of course, he's a philanthropist as well. Um, and is really active in that way here in Phoenix. So, Kevin, uh, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. It is a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Appreciate what you're doing. Uh, well, I uh, likewise, as you know, um, as I was saying to you before, we were not uh, recording yet. Um, you are uh, the third or fourth preacher's kid that I have had on this podcast, which is not very old. So I don't know what that says. Uh, why are preacher's kids so interesting and successful? You know, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm probably one of the least likely entrepreneurs you'll ever meet. Uh, I am a preacher's kid. My dad has been in the ministry for close to 60 years. Uh, at the age of 80, uh, he is doing pulpit supply somewhere about three out of the four Sundays a month. Uh, very well respected. Uh, he, he's the godliest and most Christian man I've ever been around in my life, which is saying a lot because I've seen him up close in uh, in times of struggle and challenges. Uh, his dad, my grandfather, was actually uh, a minister as well, and so uh, people always. You go right ahead, my friend. It's a family business. I said it's a fa everybody thought I was going to go into family business. That's exactly right. You know, so uh, you know, but I found I was gifted with teaching. I uh, I was a history teacher and. Um, uh, worked with kids that were at risk of dropping out of school, and that's where uh, you know I've spent most of my most of my career uh, is in teaching, and and even today, you know, in in the different roles that I'm involved with. Uh, my daughter, my daughter helped me out a lot uh, last summer. We were just kicking around some ideas, and my oldest daughter, uh, she said, "Dad, you've always been a teacher and a coach," and I think that's probably uh, the best definition of uh, who I am. 
Well, let's talk about where you're from and your background, Kevin, and give, give listeners a little bit of context. I think um, uh, the more um, observant of our listeners will note that there is a Southern twang in your speech that is not characteristic of Phoenix. So um, talk a little bit about yeah, where you grew up um, and where, you know, where you're from and, and how, um, how Odyssey Wear uh, got to be started and, and what lessons you've taken from that into your work as a philanthropist and civil society innovator. Yeah, that's fantastic. I grew up in Northeast Georgia. Uh, you can trace uh, our family back to 1739 uh, when we landed in Appalachia. Uh, most of my family are poor farm laborers. In fact, uh, my grandfather, the one I referenced, only had a third grade education. Everybody before him couldn't read or write if you uh, you look at the census documents. So they worked. Uh, they were farm laborers. And um, so my dad was the first person in our family uh, to ever go to college. And so I uh, but I have had a rich uh, uh, Christian heritage, just incredible people doing incredible things, loving on people. Uh, I started in as a teacher, and so um, I started working with kids that were at risk of dropping out of school, and I just noticed a few things about them. I noticed that they were very, uh, they very much wanted to succeed, but our school system didn't measure the things they were good at, and the things they were good at, we didn't measure. And so uh, I just kept thinking, there's got to be a better way and so I started playing around with uh, computers and technology and uh, trying different things. I failed a lot. I can tell you three or four ways on how to run a business and about a thousand ways not to run it. <laughs> um, and so I just got this idea. I sat down at a Waffle House, pulled out a napkin, and I drew out this idea of what if we could diagnose kids learning gaps where they're having challenges to figure out what do they know and what do they not know. And then customize content in subject matters like uh, algebra or world history or whatever else. Uh, one of the things I noticed, Jeremy, is most kids drop out of school in the third and fourth grade. Now, they don't, they don't physically drop out until they do their job and drive a car. But mentally and emotionally, by the third or fourth grade, they're off track. We know who they are. If you ask the teacher, they know which of these kids are having uh, troubles and and so the question then becomes, how do we engage them? And a lot of these kids have a high visual acuity. And so they tap into technology. They speak technology. Uh, and yet when they come into the classroom, the very first thing we ask them to do is to turn their technology off. And so, uh, you know, so we went through a whole learning experience, but that was the, that was the beginning and the nexus of Odysseyware. Did you... Um Here's a question that I always wonder when when I hear these sorts of stories from from entrepreneurs, um, uh, and I, you always want to ask them this candid question. <laughs> uh, so take it; you can answer as candidly as you like. Were you looking for a business that would hit it big? Were you looking for something that would that would really take off, or were you really driven more by this problem you saw with? Um, these kids dropping out of school. And how did you become aware of the problem? I assume it was through your, your work teaching history, but um, what, what was your motivation? Or was it, was it just candidly just a mix of both those things? No, no, no. Great question. The core for me was I saw a problem and I said, there's got to be a solution. In fact, I will tell you, because I didn't come from a background of finance or economics or business, 
my, my entire vision was, man, if we could just sell a million dollars of this stuff over my lifetime, that'd be just incredible. And I went out and started having conversations with superintendents about this idea and what I was building. And over the first hundred days, we sold $1.2 million of the stuff. And that was my first clue that, you know what, this thing might actually turn into something, you know, and this might be bigger than I, than I ever dreamed. So to answer your question, it was, let's have a conversation with people who've got a problem and let's figure out how do we solve that problem? And, and the business flowed out of that. It's interesting because I think, I wonder what you, you would say about this, but um, there's a certain orientation of mind uh, like yours that was, uh, let's build a business to solve this problem or at least develop a product that, that then becomes really a business. There's another orientation of mind, and I don't think this is any, any worse at all, but it's different, which is like, let's start a nonprofit organization that will uh, attack this problem in a different way, not as a business, but in whatever that, you know, whatever the solution might've been from a nonprofit perspective, bring more mentoring in, or might've even been a technological solution, but done in a nonprofit way. What's um, in your own way, obviously you've served civil society through this. Um, you built a business that has addressed a problem and very, been very successful because it works. Um, what is that difference in mind between a business and a nonprofit? You know, is, is one better than the other in your mind? Um, um, should we be putting more resources toward business solutions rather than nonprofit solutions and, and these sorts of situations? Uh, do you have thoughts on, on this? Yeah. Yeah, I'm asking? yeah. yeah, That's a great question. Uh, I, I lean toward sustainability. Um, if you're going to start something, I, don't you want it to live? I mean, isn't isn't the intent? If you're going to start something, you want this thing to actually last. You know, if you if you plant a tree, you'd like to hope that in 25 years you come back and the thing's grown. You know, and a lot of times people uh, will go into a nonprofit mentality, regrettably, with an idea that uh, they are one bad donation season away from going out of business. And rather than building sustainability, I'll tell you a real quick story. In my backyard here in Phoenix, uh, I'm blessed. I can go out every Christmas morning and there is a grapefruit tree in my backyard. And I can pull a grapefruit off that tree. I go in and I cut it open and I'm able to enjoy the fruit of that of that tree. Now, here's the crazy thing. I didn't plant that tree. Somebody planted that tree back in 1989 when the house was built and they put an irrigation to it and they they, you know, kept the bugs away and they pruned it and they did all the work. And I'm enjoying the fruit. But it was because somebody thought about sustainability. Somebody said that thing's got to have some sunshine. It's got to have water. It's got to have room to grow. And somebody's got to tend for it. And I think in that way, successful nonprofits and successful businesses think the same way. You got to get, you got to constantly give it life. And you got to ask yourself, what is bringing life into this and create a sustainable structure for it to do that? Let's talk about that. You have this innovation center that you've been involved in starting uh, at Grand Canyon University. Um, 
What have you learned so far? Maybe I'm sure you went in with a lot of ideas already. Maybe you can talk about those as well. But um, what are you learning about what makes what are the distinguishing characteristics between the startups that succeed that are coming out of there uh, um, and, and going on to success and those that um, that fail? Is it is it just a matter of how good the idea is, or is or is there something else to it? No, in fact. I, I was at a meeting. This is a great question. I was at a meeting. Uh, one of the community colleges in our city, It's we have a great community college system. And uh, there were 35 uh, business leaders sitting around this uh, room. Uh, and the, the dean of the uh, business school at the community college was asking, what do you, what do you as a business community need? What do, we, what do we need to be teaching these students to prepare them for jobs? And of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tick off about half your audience here in just a second, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> we, went around, we went around the room, and the the finance people said, "Well, what you need to be doing is you need to be teaching them finance, and you need to you know you got to teach them macroeconomics, microeconomics. You got to teach them raising money, all this stuff." Then they went to the people that were in marketing and they said, oh, what you got to do is you got to teach them marketing. They've got to have a cutting edge website and they need to know search engine optimization. Then you get to the accountants. Oh, you need to teach them debits and credits. And they got around to me and I was being really quiet, which is unusual. And the dean of the business school who knew me said, Mr. Youngblood, you've been real quiet. Uh, You've actually had a very successful exit uh, of a business what do you think, what do you think we need to be teaching? And I said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to offend anybody, but the bottom line is if you give me a young lady who does not have a website, she doesn't know anything about finance. She doesn't know anything about debits and credits, knows nothing about search engine optimization, may not even have a product, but if she has revenue, she actually has a business. On the other hand, you can have the most perfect website, the most perfect product. You can have a board that has all these credentials. But if you don't have revenue, all you have is a class project. And it totally redirected the conversation in a, in a, in a good way. So what I've learned, Jeremy, is that revenue is number one. If you don't have the oxygen in the room, then it doesn't give you the time or the runway to build that perfect product. Or to improve your man, when I look back at our first website, it was garbage. It was absolutely the color scheme would have, you know, it would it was just terrible. Um, the marketing materials that we threw together. My first introduction to customers was I actually wrote them a letter. You'll never see that in any marketing classes telling you to write right. them. Right. I wrote, I wrote a letter to four hundred charter schools. And I said, I know what you're facing. Here's what I'm going to be proposing, and I'm going to run out there. Would you be open to a conversation? And then I followed them up with phone calls. And out of those 400, I got eight customers. And most, and most of those customers stayed with me 15 years in the journey of Odysseyware. So, so they saw it when it was junk, when it was the product was really poor. But they stayed with me because we were committed to their excellence and their success until we rolled out the final versions. And it really was the cutting edge and setting the standard for the industry. This is a really interesting point. I mean, it might be lost on some people, I, I, I wonder, because 
I imagine if you're not in a business school sort of environment, you might think, well, of course, revenue is the oxygen in the room to a business. I mean, isn't that obvious? But I guess that isn't always. And and certainly on the nonprofit side, I when people come to us with uh, startup ideas, I, that's the first question I'm asking them now. Something I've learned in the last decade or so is, well, where are you going to get the runway, the financial runway you need to succeed? Because this it, this is hard. And if you don't have that, you know, um, you know, if somebody's going to bankroll you or somebody's who are going to bankroll you for a while, uh, this is going to be extremely difficult yeah. to do. Well, in my in my free, you mentioned the innovation center there at Grand Canyon University. In my first meeting uh, last August, I pulled thirty four businesses together that were there, and I just said, "Okay, go around the room. Give me your elevator pitch. Who are you? What's the problem you think you're trying to solve? What makes you think you can fix it? How are you going to grow this thing?" Every one of them said, "We're going to grow it by raising capital," and I said, "Okay." I know I'm old school. I know I'm the oldest guy in here, but I got this crazy idea. It's probably mm-hmm. never been tried before. <laughs> but have you ever actually thought about selling your product to a customer? <laughs> yeah. And these the blank stares were like, no. That and so what's what's happened is they've taken a distorted vision of, and and then I was able to explain to them how if you go out and sell your product to a customer, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to improve the product. But more importantly, you're going to you're going to elevate your ability to raise capital because you're in the money. You're in that revenue. It's a it's a Silicon Valley model that seems to have um, taken over uh, everything. Right. We see this in the nonprofit world as well. But as you're pointing out, it's raising capital, not selling product. It's uh, profit doesn't ever matter as far as I can tell, um, which is another kind of. New school idea, it seems to me. It seemed to me that you always wanted to actually be profitable quickly. Um, how is that? How is that distorting um, people's thinking about what their businesses are in their communities? I mean, obviously, you you did have an exit. You sold your company, but you didn't get into it for this purpose. You didn't have a kind of a Silicon Valley mindset when you started the company, as far as I can tell. Right. It, it seems right. distorting to me that people are not thinking like, I'll start a business and I will run this business for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll hand it down to my children and we'll just be provide a, a nice living, we hope. Um, it's it's all now about just getting to the, to the buyout stage, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. Well, the problem is I call it the lottery mentality. They think, man, I'll just win the lottery. I'll go. In fact, I, one of the things that used to aggravate me, I was on the board at Arizona State University Center for Entrepreneurship. And prior to, to being part of this launch at uh, Grand Canyon University with the Innovation Center, and I used to have conversations with them. And I'd say, look, a lot of you guys are trying to create the thing that nobody's ever created, the new Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn thing that nobody's ever thought about. Why don't you take this water bottle and make it the best water bottle and the least expensive water bottle in the history of the world. And I said, you'll make a boatload of money if that's your goal. So a lot of their mentality is there's so much money sloshing around in the American economy that it actually creates inefficiencies. The best ideas historically come from scarcity. When you have to make do with almost nothing, when you have you don't have two nickels to rub together, man, those people will usually figure it out and they'll have the dedication. And so I really like to work with poor communities for that very reason, because they're hustling. 
Well, that's a great segue, uh, Kevin. We'll come back from this break and talk about um, your work with poor communities um, and your philanthropy uh, that's associated with all that. And talk a little bit about localism as well and your work with Local First Arizona. We'll be right back. All right. We are uh, ready for a little practical interlude um, here, this time joined by uh, my colleague, Emma Bogger. How are you doing, Emma? I'm great, Jeremy. How are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm well. Um, Emma is uh, the Director of Creative Services here at American Philanthropic and wonderful uh, creative uh, designer. And uh, it's really good at branding. Uh, and so we're going to talk about branding with Emma here today because um, – it may not be something uh, that if you're in the nonprofit business, you've maybe thought that much about, or maybe you think you have a good brand now, but maybe you don't really. So um, Emma, uh, I'd love to kind of hear your take on exactly what we're talking about when we talk about branding, uh, why it's important, and then uh, maybe a couple of tips on how nonprofits might get better at it. Fantastic. Yeah, so branding is, it's really sort of a catch-all umbrella term. Um, depending on who you ask, you might get a wildly different definition. But basically, the most important thing to know about branding is that it's your visual identity. It's your logo, your fonts, and your colors. But it's also your messaging. It's how you talk about your organization through your website, through your social media. Um, if you're a nonprofit, it's your mission and your vision. And it also comes down to your people. Your people are ultimately your walking, talking billboards, if you will, for your organization. So they kind of are out there in the world uh, representing your brand and giving you a, repu- a reputation as well. I, is, um, hey, how good are most nonprofits at, at this whole business, Emma, from what you've seen in your time here in America? <laughs> I thought you might ask that. <laughs> um, I... So I think that I won't fault anybody too much because I think that there's generally just a lack of conversation around branding in the nonprofit space because it's seen by nonprofits overall, I think. And this is just a generalization, so they're not all like this, but I think it's seen by nonprofits as sort of something that's a little hoity-toity or perhaps um, if, if you have really good branding, it means you care more about your brand than your mission. And I find that's actually not true. Um, the more you care about your brand and the more that you uh, take care of how you represent your organization out in the world, the more people I think are going to be drawn to that and not just people, but hopefully future donors. Right. Okay. So how do we get better at it? What, what would be a couple of things people could look at right now to evaluate or get better uh, with their branding? Well, first I'd say um, start by just gathering everything that you have when your branding comes to mind into one place. So if you don't already have a centralized location, a Dropbox folder, let's say, for your logo, your letterhead, any fonts you use, start by doing that because that's going to give you a really good idea of um, where you're starting from. Um, But beyond that, make sure that you have a vector logo, if at all possible. A lot of nonprofits, I think... Um, they have logos that are probably sentimental to them, maybe something that someone sketched out and they love it. But, you know, 10 years down the road, um, they realize that they have a bunch of different versions and many of them are pixelated and they're never quite sure what to give 
a designer or an advertiser when they want to talk about their nonprofit. So get a vector logo if you can. Um, and that's usually a matter of using your in-house designer. They'll probably know how to do that or paying a nominal fee to have someone take a look at it and vectorize it. And just so everybody kind of knows what that means um, and the benefits of it, a vector logo allows you to use that logo in whatever application you need. So it's a scalable format, which means that it'll look great on a print material, but it's also gonna look great on something as big as a billboard. Um, in addition to that, I'd say get yourself a, a visual identity one-pager, I like to call it. So it's just a simple document. It doesn't have to be super fancy, but what it contains is your primary logo, maybe your secondary logo if you have that as well, your official colors and your official fonts all in one place. So if you're ever in a situation where you need to brand something and it needs to look like it's coming from your organization, besides just having your logo on it, um, it's something that you can use internally or you could give it to a designer outside of the organization. And that way, you know, you're really going to be represented well in that new piece. And then um, lastly, but also super importantly, is basic stationary needs. Um, if you don't already have a letterhead template, get yourself a basic word letterhead template. Um, and then a thank you note. You want to be able to have a really clean, nicely designed way to um, write a quick note just off the cuff whenever you need to, as that's so important when running a nonprofit. Emma, those are all very basic things, but they are things that people, uh, you know, it, they're hard to get to sometimes. Um, how big do you need to be in your mind before you kind of have a full-blown branding guide, you know, something something pretty big uh, and, and extensive? Well, I, I guess I couldn't really put like a, a dollar amount on it. I mean, some of the a, – a really large, well-done, super wide-scope branding package – will cost quite a bit if you do it pretty well. But I'd say instead of focusing on, you know, when can we afford this really big um, change, I would just focus on the important things. Once you get past the few things that I mentioned, um, maybe then consider redesigning your logo. If it's still not quite what you want it to be, um, do it little by little. There's no right or wrong way to do this. Um, obviously, the most comprehensive brands do have all those little details, and there's a massive style guide that'll tell you exactly how to use it. But um, I think that before you even get into that, the most important thing to do is just um, get the basics down. Your great looking logo, make sure everybody knows how to use it, make sure you have some basic stationery, um, and that can be a great jumping off point for anyone. Love it. Thanks a lot, Emma. Appreciate the advice. Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. Anytime. We are back with Kevin Youngblood, uh, entrepreneur in residence at Grand Canyon University, uh, chairman of the board at Local First Arizona, very successful businessman um, and philanthropist. So, Kevin, you were just talking about why you like to work with uh, poor communities because of the sort of hustle that you find there. Talk to me about that a little bit. You mentioned to me in a previous conversation sort of three things uh, that you think uh, economically marginal, uh, yeah, poor neighborhoods might need the most. What? Tell us about that and why you, why you believe in those things. Yeah, fantastic. The, I, it, it all comes from my faith. Uh, that drives uh, how I look at sustainable ways to bless other people. You know, we all heard, we've all heard the maximum that if you give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, he can feed himself for a lifetime. 
when I look at uh, what the American church has done over the last uh, 2,000 years, you know, uh, Jesus gave his last will and testament, which was to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. And he gave four specific areas. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. The American church does really good at the Jerusalem part. Uh, we, we offer programs and services to the faithful who will pay tithes. So we make the house payment to offer programs to the faithful who can pay, pay the house payment. And we just do this cyclical thing. We never leave the building to go out in the community. The other thing is we do really good at the uttermost part of the world thing. You know, uh, somebody wants to start an orphanage in Zambia, we're there. Where we don't do so good is in the Samarias and the Judeas. And so when I look at those areas, there are three things that uh, I'm going to be committed probably for the rest of my life, Jeremy, uh, to do or to contribute to the conversation in some way. The first thing is, is to plant trees. And a lot of people would say, what is that all about? Well, when you drive around our wealthier parts of our city, like Scottsdale Fountain Hills, Paradise Valley, it's a, it's a garden place. You know, there's trees, there's grass, there's golf courses, there's flowers. But if you drive through some of the poorer sections of our city, you think you're in a different world, you know, a third world country. And, you know, we all started in a garden. Every, every religious tradition in the world starts with that basic story that we started in a garden. And I think part of our being on planet Earth is to plant life. It's to go into those areas that are barren. If they're, you know, to create a beautiful landscape so people's eyes are drawn upward and they're lifted upward. The second thing that in poor communities is to plant businesses. One of the things that I do at the Innovation Center is I help these software startups and I say, all right, we're going to try to help you, get you successful and get you healthy and scalable. But when you graduate out of here, we're going to ask you not to move your company to a wealthy part of our city. We're going to ask you to move it to a poor neighborhood which means that you're going to have to go in and have conversations with people in that community. And in the process, you're going to give them the opportunity to, to ramp up to high tech and to ramp up to the world of software. And you're also going to empower the ecosystem there because you're going to have to hire caterers, landscapers, painters, sheetrock, IT, you know, and so you're, you're basically planting life in that community and changing the economic conversations that people have. Um, and then the last thing that I'm uh, recommending in poor communities is to plant churches. And uh, it's a different model, Jeremy. And I'll tell you that, uh, uh, you know, some, of, some people that are in traditional denominations and stuff, they will have heartburn over this. But I don't, I don't think we need any more church buildings. We got church buildings everywhere. And what I'd like to see is people start churches in their homes, in libraries, in charter schools, in parks, wherever they can meet as as church families. And when they collect money, which is part of our faith is generosity, when we collect that money, instead of going to pay for real estate, why don't we pour it back into the community to take care of widows and orphans and the poor and the prisoner? So in essence, the church, instead of being a GPS location, actually becomes the church. And we actually serve with our hands uh, and exercise our faith. 
it's a really interesting triumvirate of ideas, it seems to me. Um, and certainly the plant trees, when you first said that to me, <clears throat> I thought you were being metaphorical. Like I thought there was some deeper meaning for plant trees than you meant planting trees. But it's really – it's a beautiful idea and it's it, – it, because it's oriented around beauty, there's something very deep about that, something about our built landscape, our the landscape that surrounds us that uh, draws us towards certain kinds – modes of being and ways of thinking and acting. Uh, How did you come up with this idea? What was the inspiration uh, other than just driving around town and seeing how different neighborhoods look differently. Um, well, there were, yeah, great. There was, a, there was a study done in the 1970s or so, and it was about crime. Mm. And I traveled to New York City in 1980. And I have to tell you, as a 17-year-old kid, it was a scary place, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And just uh, crime everywhere. And you know if you're going to get robbed or whatever. And but they took the New York City leadership took this uh, study to heart, and basically the study said this: if there's a broken window, fix it as soon as you can. If there's grass that's growing up, cut it. If there's if there's trash, pick it up. If there's graffiti, turn it into a mural. And the whole principle was get people to take a sense of beauty and ownership what's around them. And so that's the that's the physical part. And and trees, I love the idea of trees. I referenced the grapefruit tree earlier in this conversation. Somebody planted that not knowing that I was going to come along 40 years later and get the benefit from it. Yeah, it's an act of trust planting a tree. It's an act of belief in the future. That's right. exactly right. And you are trusting that somebody is going to benefit from this if I take care of it. Yeah. There's something inherently unselfish about planting a tree because it's uh, it's going to go well beyond you and your uh, enjoyment of it, especially if it's sort of a slower growing tree. There's sort of a you're, – you're implicitly putting your belief in a community when you plant a tree there. You betcha. And you got to put some thought into it. How are you going to get water to this thing for a long period of time? How is it? Is it native to that area? Does it bring value? Does it bring fruit or color or shade or whatever? So you've got to put some thought into, and it is that that legacy. You know, we we don't know how long we're going to be on this planet, Jeremy. Uh, my dad's seventy nine. He's outlived the four generations before him. And you know, I'm fifty seven. I don't know how long I'm going to live. But if you plant a tree or you plant a business or you plant a church, now you've got the potential of doing something exponentially larger in influence and blessing of the people than the mere period of time you may be on this earth. What are the um, the planting businesses idea? It's obviously, it's a, I think it's um, – it's a great idea. But what are, though, the infrastructure challenges that you're – uh, you, you're seeing businesses face maybe that are already coming out of the innovation center. I don't know how much of this has happened already, but I'm thinking in terms of just finding people to work at those businesses, uh, rules, crime. Like, what are the, you know, what does a community need to do in order to make this really possible uh, for business uh, owners to come in and 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 help lift up a poorer community? Well, this is a great transition into the work that I've been doing with Local First Arizona. Uh, they have a program called Forza Local, which is a, a local first in Spanish. 
And it's a brilliant program. And when I saw it, I literally said, that is the, that is well thought out. That has sustainability to it. And here's what, here's the way it works. If you have an idea or a hustle, and, and a lot of people in poor communities do have hustles. They got stuff. They're working out of their garage. They're out of their trunk or their car, out of their closet. They're hustling, man. They are trying to make stuff happen. And so uh, they just need some coaching and they need the access to capital. So what the Forza program does is they bring in cohorts and you apply to be a part of this. And you, you, you have to make some agreements to be a part of it. And part of the agreement is you'll go through the entire program. And I don't remember if it's 12 or 16 weeks, but it's a lengthy process. And they're going to teach you everything about banking, marketing, cor- incorporating, uh, legal matters, finance matters, sales, products, inventory. You know, they're going to go through and they take business people in the general area who mentor and who dedicate their time, which is how I first got involved with Local First as a mentor and to go in and, and to coach. And so as long as you're in the program, they're going to ask you to set aside uh, uh, $1,200. It's like $100 a month or uh, every few weeks or whatever else. So it requires you to save, to set up an account and save money. And at the end of it, you get a certificate of graduation, plus we match your savings. Oh, that's so great. now you're going to graduate with all this knowledge, a better business person, plus you're going to have $1,000 of your money saved up and $1,000 that we've given you. So you now you've got some capital. And because you've set up an account, you're now accessing banking and credit unions that position you to get the capital you need to grow this thing. That's fantastic. And do you find our banks um, and credit unions, I know there's been a steep decline in the number of credit unions in this country over the last uh, generation. Are they willing to work with these? Have you had to twist arms, you know, uh, and bring some political pressure to bear to get them to work with these people who are probably not, you know, all of them the most credit worthy in traditional sense? Well, the bottom line is the answer is no. The big big four banks uh, in Phoenix – I, I just, they, they have no context. They have no, they, it's not worth it for them. And yeah. so I, uh, so we have an actual movement we call move your money day. Mm-hmm. And every year we encourage people to move your money, get it out of the quit voting for the big New York city banks. Love it. That, that have no investment here. Move your money, move it to a local credit union, move it to a local banking institution. That does have, I remember back in the early days when I was in Georgia and uh, you knew your banker, you had a relationship with right. them and, and, and they, you'd see them on the street, you'd see them at church, you'd see them at football games, high school football games or whatever else. And nobody knows their banker no. out of New York, nobody in, in, and so it's a transactional thing. So we tell people, move your money. That's fantastic. And we need to think about how we can make this a national thing, Kevin. Move your money day should be move your money week. And uh, <laughs> if uh, we could really get that word out, that would be tremendous. It's um, There are some challenges, I'm sure, uh, with that. But uh, it's it's really necessary, I think, because you're exactly right. It's almost impossible to have a relationship with your local uh, banker, there's no Jimmy Stewart around anymore. Who you know? Oh, I know, and I and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot I'm gonna shoot a shot over the bow here just a second. 
Yeah. The state of Arizona, 72% of its assets are deposited in banks that are not from Arizona. 72% of our assets. So we're trying to tell the governor, and we're trying to tell anybody who listen, invest locally. Take your money and make circulate those dollars here. Are you aware of a way that just th- this just leads to another discussion, or in my mind anyway, or another question? Um, if I want to invest um, money easily, it, Fidelity and everybody else makes it really simple, right? Whoever I might be with, it just you know set up this account, and in ten minutes you've got your um, your savings invested in your 401k or whatever, all invested in, in mutual funds um, that include none of the kinds of businesses that we're talking about here that are integral to the health of a local community, especially poorer communities. Is there any easy way for people to invest in the these very small businesses, um, uh, the, the kind that you're working with, the local first Arizona, instead of Absolutely. And, and and the shame is I can't tell you about it right now because we're in confidential negotiations. Okay. <laughs> but we're we're going to be coming out in with a group that's putting an app together. So on a phone, you're going to be able to set up an account, deposit, take out money, and, and you're not even going to have to go into these big four banks to do it. And it's a very exciting thing. And we expected to have it in place within the next uh, uh, 90 to 120 days. Well, we may have to have you back to talk about that or at least uh, uh, do something about that on philanthropydaily.com uh, uh, where we also uh, have these sorts of articles and discussions. That's tremendous because that seems to me one of the another threshold issue. I mean, there are two issues we're sort of circling around here, right? One is just a mindset issue that people don't even think about where you put your money. They didn't used to think about where they shopped, right? Or where their food was coming from. That sort of changed in the last 20 years with this localism uh, movement. Uh, that There's a little bit more intentionality, uh, at least within a certain segment of the population. I don't know if it's reached sort of a, a popular phase yet about where, hey, where's your food coming from? You know, you want to be a little bit more. Uh, where's your, where you're, where you're shopping. But there are things like where you put your money, where how you where you invest your money, we haven't gotten to a localist phase yet in those things, or at least it doesn't seem like we have. Uh, every, to me, every time every time you pull out a credit card or cash, you are voting. It may not be November the third, but there's an election and you're voting. And when you vote on that national franchise, that's based out of wherever, you're voting that they succeed. When you go to a mom and pop breakfast place and they treat you with a smile, and these are the same people that are going to support the little league ball teams. These are the same people that are going to help support cleanup city efforts. These are the same people that are going to contribute toward foster care in your city and all the things that are important. When you put dollars there, you're casting a ballot. You are voting that they succeed. You're giving them that opportunity. So just as we had this heavy, weighty decision on, on November 3rd of casting a ballot, we need to think of our dollars on how we do that every day. We are voting. Who do we want to win? Who do we want to lose? Is there a sense? I, that's very well put. And I think when you put it that way, you probably get 
fairly broad agreement across any sort of political or ideological divide, there might be that, yeah, that's right. And I need to be thoughtful about that. And most people think that it's good to support, um, you know, their local businesses and merchants, but, um, is there as broad of agreement? I'm going to, I'm waiting this question a little bit, but on the conditions that are necessary for those local businesses to flourish, uh, there, um, it's not just consumption decisions made by, uh, consumers, but also the sort of the bureaucratic, um, uh, hurdles that might, and regulatory hurdles that might need to be continually, you know, overcome, uh, to stay in business or to start a business, to continue operating, uh, tax things, et cetera. Um, do we have as is there are we thoughtful enough about all that sort of thing that the I, I get the feeling that because people are more and more removed from local business they don't really have a sense on just how hard it is uh, to do all these things and it's obviously harder it's obviously harder on local small businesses than it is on huge corporations. You know uh, when I you know when you look back over a life of fifty seven years you have uh, mountains you have valleys you have things that were you know, uh, German chocolate cake type experiences and other times it were carrot and spinach type experiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. The toughest thing I've ever done in my life was build a business. And I've served in combat in the Marine Corps. I've played sports. I've done some tough stuff. People have no idea until they've done it, the amount of effort it takes to create momentum in a business and to create that and to employ other people and to look around that table knowing not only do I have to close the deal, but I got to collect the check and the check has to clear the bank so I can make payroll this week. That kind of pressure is huge. And our governments need to create an environment where people can have less restriction to do that. There's this all this talk about taking from the wealthy and the poor and all this stuff. You know, the greatest thing they could do is structure the tax system so that the small business owner can move fast. Take away those restrictive things that make it difficult to be in business. Do you know who employs most of the people in the United States? It's small businesses. It's not the large corporations. And yet a lot of the emphasis from coming out of our state leaders and our federal leaders is all about the big employers and how do we recruit the big employer to come in? Why don't you take some of that energy and money that you're pouring into trying to recruit California firms from moving here and go in and help some of these smaller firms learn how to fish? Don't give them a fish, but teach them how to fish and give them those capabilities and then get off their back and let the economy go. Yeah, let, let them fish in the river uh, without you or getting in the way all the time. Too. That's right. Yeah, it would be great if one some state would say, "Hey, we're going to be the small business state," and and orient everything around that. Um, well, let's talk about. Okay, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. Then we're talking about entrepreneurship and small business. Um, how does you know, you're, you're very active in philanthropy? I know you have a an education trust, which perhaps you could talk about um, uh, that uh, helps kids go to college. I'd love to hear about that first, and then just generally, you know, how does an entrepreneur like you, maybe think differently about philanthropy than um, than somebody else would. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, general principle, uh, I start every day realizing I don't own anything. My faith teaches me that God owns everything. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. God owns it all. I own nothing. There are several businesses with my name attached to them, but I own nothing. 
which makes it really easy to be a generous person. When you realize how you've been blessed, you hold on to things loosely. The second principle that I try to abide by is every moment's a teachable moment. I try to use every interaction to teach my kids, the entrepreneurs I'm working with. If I'm going to do things, use it as a teachable moment to show them how to do it. So I involve my children in entrepreneurial effort. So you mentioned the education trust. My dad was the first person in our family to ever go to college. In his honor, we set up an education trust. And thus far, my wife and I have been able to fully fund for 19 students to go to college. Now, we have, we have high goals on that. They've got to be going to an accredited institution. They've got to be working on a degree that's going to have impact. And we defy, have some parameters around what that is involving science, technology, engineering, math, business, that type thing. I don't be getting a degree in some one-off. You know, it, it amazed me when I would be in restaurants and I'd talk to the waiter or waitress and I'd just say, hey, you still in school? Oh, no, I've graduated. All right, what'd you get your degree in? Uh, early French literature. Oh, okay. All right. What do you see yourself doing with that? Oh, I'm probably going to go get a master's in philosophy or something. Uh, how much did that set you back? $100,000. And I'm sitting there scratching my head thinking, this person is, they, they are in, they're in deep trouble. They don't know it, but they're in deep trouble. So the other thing that we require of these grantees in the education trust, we actually created an affidavit so that their pastor or priest has to sign this stating that this student is actively involved in giving back to their community which is another principle. You don't become generous after you sell a business for $100 million. Generosity is a muscle. And let's get working it right now. So I would say to all the small business leaders, one day one day you'll write a check of a big number to that ministry or nonprofit that you want to. But why don't you start with writing a small check? Give your time and give consistently to those ventures, the things that you believe in. Vote with your dollars to put those to put those efforts forth for those things that you want to be successful. Uh, so at our, my wife and I, have, we met with trust attorneys and all that stuff, and we've got it set up so that a small portion of our wealth is going to go to our children, but the huge majority is going to go into the education trust to send kids to college who can't afford to do that, and or also to go into ministries, nonprofit, missional type things that we think are having significant impact. And we're setting our kids up to run those efforts, to run the education trust, and then to run the charitable trust that we've set up uh, upon, uh, upon both my wife and I's passing. Kevin, that's tremendous. You obviously, you think deeply about all these things um, as you have sort of, especially maybe after you sold your business a few years ago and presumably a few more dollars are in your pocket um, uh, to think about this uh, more deeply. What, what have you, what are you looking for in a nonprofit organization that you might want to invest in? Or what do you see that really distinguishes the, the, the successful ones or investable ones from those that you would consider not so investable? Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Have you, have you come to any conclusions yet as you make your way through this landscape? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, first thing I got to look for is sustainability. If if you if you have to constantly beg, borrow to get money in the door, or you go out of business, there's an entrepreneurial face to a nonprofit, just like there is to a for profit. Uh, and but once you get off that entrepreneurial phase, you better be scalable. You better be. You better have created a sustainability. So I'm really drawn to nonprofits that think like for profits. How do they create intellectual property? How do they create processes? How do they create product services that can generate income to support that organization, regardless of what the economy is doing? The second thing is I invest in, just like I invest in for-profits, I invest in the jockey, not the horse. Right. (laughs) Show me the leadership. Is this leader a lone ranger, or do they reach out into the ecosystem and bring other leaders? Do they, do they make other leaders stronger? And I'm willing to put those, those resources behind it. You bring up an interesting thing. There are actually people and organizations that you can hurt by your generosity. They're doing things not well, and you're giving them money is only going to make them not do well faster. <laughs> yeah. And so we brought our kids in. We do this every year. And, and we, my wife and I set up a little pool of money every year. We put it in this bucket savings account and we bring them in and we say, all right, we've been giving throughout the year to these causes, but here's a special bucket. We want you to tell us where you think that money should go and the amounts that we want you to, that it should go. Your mom and I are going to go away and get a coffee. We're going to have a board meeting. And when we come back, we want you guys to defend to us your choices. And we do that every year with our kids and now our in-laws. And we make them defend why they're giving to this cause and not that cause, why this amount and not that amount. And that creates the synergy to teach them. Well, that's fantastic. And I, I think the jockey, not the horse line, I will be stealing. I think it's very, very wise, um, as well as the rest of what you're saying. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today. This has been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much. Uh, Kevin Youngblood, entrepreneur in residence at Grand Canyon University. You can uh, check them out online. It's called the Canyon Ventures Program, I believe, the Innovation Center at Grand Canyon. And certainly, especially if you're here in Arizona, by chance, uh, check out Local First Arizona uh, for all the great work they're doing. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, my friend. 